0: It's 2017, and we're back in the grocery room, room high above the Coot Street Motel 6. The bar is full. The carpets have been steam cleaned. The talent is fresh. So here we go. This week, very special guest Ellen Clagis, author of The Green Glass Sea, Portable Childhoods, and White Sands Red Menace, joins Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolfe to discuss her new book, Passing Strange, on the Coot Street Podcast.
1: Welcome, everybody, to 2017. And you thought Jonathan was kidding, but I actually had my carpet steam cleaned last week. And it's wonderful. It smells wonderful. Ellen, how are you? Welcome back. Why?
2: Thank you. It's it's lovely to virtually be here.
0: <laughs> and we we are here to celebrate the your, your new book, uh, Passing Strange, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, Chris, well, congratulations on it. I think it's one of the best things you've ever done. Thank you. And I mean, I guess I should also say, in you know, sort of the interest of full disclosure, uh, you know, I, I worked on editing the book, so. I, sh- I should love it, but I do. And I know, Gary, you've reviewed it in a couple of places, the Chicago Tribune and for Locus, and you, th- you thought it was pretty good as well.
1: My conclusion is interesting because we've talked before, reading uh, a book and reviewing for two different venues. And, Ellen, I hope you notice this because I thought about it after I wrote the Locus Review, and then by the time I wrote the Tribune Review, I think I said this is the best work of adult fiction you've written yet.
2: Yes, and in the Locust Review, you said this may be and and possibly could be.
1: I know I know you listen to baseball games on the radio. You and I went to a Cubs game once when you were here. So I think of those two reviews as being a radio announcer and somebody's just hit a long fly ball and it. And, and to quote Harry Carey, my favorite radio announcer of baseball, it might be out of here. It could be by the time I'd written
0: <laughs> the review, it was a home run.
2: I'm glad you like it.
0: Passing Strange, for those who haven't read it yet, and I think if you haven't read it yet, you should go and read it, it's a fantasy, it's a romance, it's a historical, it's a tale of community, it's a tale of support, it's a tale of minorities living in hard times and more. I'm curious, Ellen, how much of this story was personal to you? How did you come to to find this story?
2: I actually started writing this story 40 years ago. Uh, literally, like 1977. Um, I was 22, and I had moved, just moved to San Francisco right out of college, um, and I fell completely in love with the city. Um, and so I started doing research on the history of San Francisco, um, and my girlfriend and I at the time made up these two characters, Emily Netterfield and Loretta Haskell, and just as as nicknames one time at I think we were Bowling. And we just sort of wrote down, there was a place that was $2 all you could bowl. So we kept making up names for different games. And then I just sort of, I started writing a story about, at that point, Haskell was, I think she was an actress from L.A. And Emily was always a singer at Mona's. And I got Mm -hmm. like four scenes written of this thing. And then, and I was 22 and didn't quite know what I was doing and so I sort of put them in a drawer and every time I switched computers over the last 40 years I would transfer the file from one format to another Um, I think at one point I had to actually type it from a typewriter into a computer and I kept reading them thinking well someday I'll write that story Um, you know and then time went by and maybe three four years ago I found it and I thought maybe I'll write that story now. And I went and I did a whole lot more research on San Francisco and Mona's and, and at the time and all of that. Um, And then, I don't know, I blinked and it went away, but I had a whole shelf full of books and a notebook full of notes. And then what, a year and a half ago, Jonathan emailed me and said, Hey, I'm acquiring novellas for tour.com. You want to write one? And I had injured my back and I hadn't written anything in literally anything, anything in, I uh, had two years and I thought, sure, I actually don't know if I can do this. And then I thought, well, what do I want to write? I've only written one novella and that was with Andy and, and, you know, he did half of it and I did half of it. And I thought, this is the time to, to tell the San Francisco story. I've never written a, a proposal for a piece of short fiction before, but I sat down and thought, well, what's it going to be about? And I went back and read the proposal and it's, it's in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not exactly the book that it ended up being, but then, you know, it almost never is. But yeah, this is a book that was kind of sort of 40 years in the making. So it's, it's personal because it's, it's, I feel like this is the story that I'm telling my 22 year old self who mm-hmm. really, really wanted to read a story about Mona's and the World's Fair in 1940 and, and go back to that San Francisco. Uh, rather than the San Francisco of the '70s.
1: But you had done some research on, on sort of the history of queer San Francisco as far back as Time Gypsy. Uh, yeah, Time which-
2: Gypsy's Time Gypsy's my first story, and it's it's actually the research that I did for Time Gypsy came out of all of that stuff in the '70s because I was. I was in a a San Francisco historical group, and we were doing, we were working, a bunch of us were were working on the history of various gay bars, um, which are one of the most ephemeral establishments ever, because, you know, the the bar is still there, but it's, some places were gay bars for, you know, three or four months, and then they turned into some other kind of bar, and they turned into some other kind of bar, and by the time I was looking at them, they were a punk bar, and now, you know... Twenty-five years after that, thirty years after that, I have no idea what they'd be now. Um, But yeah, Time Gypsy comes out of the same that same research in the late seventies.
1: How did the how did the pulp art uh, aspect of because obviously, as you just described, Loretta Haskell, who in the story is a legendary artist of what basically is Weird Tales magazine, and apparently she was not there in the original. She was not an artist in your original conception, right? No,
2: there's there's many things that are very very different in this from my original conception. Um, for one thing, it has a happy ending. Um, and my original conception, Haskell was bisexual and went and went off with Len. Forty years ago, I don't think I could have imagined two women having a happy ending because it really was different times. Um, and as I was getting to that, you know, thinking about about the plot. Really, she wasn't going off with Len this time. I had this giant notebook. It's actually a big, big pebble sketchbook, and I was doing all the research and taking notes. Um, and it's and then I would sit down with a glass of wine and just sort of go, "Okay, how are these women related? And how do they know each other?" And it's and I was thinking that Hassel wanted to be. I wanted her to be something in the arts. I wanted her to be an artist. And at at some point, I have a note that says. What if she's an illustrator? And I think that was right. That was probably around July of last, of the summer before last, because then we were all you, Gary, you and I were hanging out together at uh, at the World Con in Spokane, right. and you told me about Margaret Brundage, um, and then there was a book on Margaret Brundage in the Dealer's Room, and it <laughs> cool. all just sort of fell into place, and so. Haskell Haskell is not Margaret Brundage, but I used some of Margaret Brundage's life and a whole lot of her art to I stole a whole lot of her art and gave it gave it to Haskell. Yeah. But yeah, it was just one note saying, What if she's an illustrator?
0: How much of writing Passing Strange the history of writing Passing Strange is the history of teaching yourself how to write?
2: In the sense that I'm better at it than I was forty years ago. But it wasn't I mean it wasn't a continuous forty year process. Right. It was something I wrote when I was just out of college, when I thought I maybe wanted to be a writer. And then 20 years went by before I actually, no longer than that, 25 years went by before I actually published anything. So it was it was just a trunk story from when I was really, really young. And when I, you know, I almost none of it, except for the character names, the setting of Mona's and the setting of the World's Fair exist from from those first, from the four scenes that I wrote forty years ago. I mean, I I went through and I thought maybe I could crib some of it, and it it nah. <laughs> at at, at
0: know, what stage did you find the structure of the story?
2: Bits and pieces. I mean, my process is not linear. I knew I wanted to have a scene at Mona's. I knew I wanted to have a scene at the World's Fair. I knew I wanted to have a scene in Forbidden City. I when I first. When you first asked me to do it, I thought, well, novella. I've never actually written a novella. I mean, Andy and I wrote this long thing that turned out to be a novella. But a novella, I wonder if a novella has a structure. And so I went and read a whole bunch about novellas. And somebody said that the most perfect novella ever written is James Joyce's The Dead. So I went and read that. And that's where I got the idea for the opening being a dinner party, which sort of stuck all the way through. I spent... Most of the month of July of 2015, reading Dashiell Hammett's Continental Op story,
1: which are all set in that period in San Francisco.
2: Which he hasn't directly said set about ten years earlier, but it, that flavor that that I that I wanted, and I read and and then I read a bunch of Sarah Walt, uh, Sarah Waters books. She writes the best dyke fiction that I think I've ever read. Very literary, no no genre at all. I just I just kept reading reading more and more stuff and getting more and more jigsaw puzzle pieces and trying to figure out how I was going to make them fit together. At one point, I had that the chapter titles were all going to sort of refer to each other. And I have Forbidden Love and Forbidden City and Magic City and Forbidden and Secret City. And then I had too many pieces and I couldn't quite make them all work. I tried. I had, I had lists of, of all of the other ways that things could be forbidden or secret or magic or and some of them were just so lame that i gave up but i wanted i don't remember when i decided to open in the present i'd read the the, the continental op stuff, especially the stuff that's set in chinatown which him wrote in like 1929 i think i bought a big little book of some secret agent who is in Chinatown and both of them have these subterranean things with secret doors and secret hiding places. And I, so I started writing and I was trying to write in a Hamadish vein. And then I realized that that part had to be set in the present. And then all of a sudden the frame story just sort of came about the last chapter. I, I was debating, I was debating about, you know, where I was going to put it. Cause it sort of, tiny and at the end, but
1: I I think it works. I think it works well. There There's some shout-outs to science fiction fandom, I suppose, and, and I suspect people who who know about Margaret Brundage and especially know about you know the controversy over her Weird Tales covers, uh, which I gather got worse once people found out it was a woman painting these erotic things. But you've also got this portrait of a character in the frame story, in the opening scene, who's, who is somebody that I'm thinking you must have met this guy in a dealer's room at a con at some point because he's so much like a number of pulp dealers that I've met
2: it's I've spent a lot of time in dealer's rooms and and used bookstores and he's not drawn he's not drawn from anybody specific in life he's he's drawn he's drawn from experience I have a friend who has a very large collection of old pulps And so I went to him and I said, you know, can I buy you a drink in exchange for sitting at your dining room table for a couple of hours and looking through your weird tales? And he said, yeah, sure. Um, He's one of the guys I play poker with every week. So so I went when the poker game was at his house, I'd go over an hour early and sit at his dining room table and look through weird tales, especially ones with with Margaret Brundage covers. Um, and I ended up with three pages of adjective as I was taking notes from mostly Lovecraftian horror kind of stories, and I used up I think forty or fifty of them in the last three pages of Passing Strange. In that last scene, <laughs> uh-huh. it's that last scene is is designed to read like it was in Weird Tales, um, mm. although it's. It, it's it's set in the present, but I literally used up my like lifetime supply of adjectives, like horrifying and ooze and and you know, <laughs> gelatinous. Um, I really I had I had three pages of of adjectives, and as I was writing that scene, I was just sort of looking down them, going, I don't think I can fit that one in. Oh,
1: that one's good.
0: You spend a lot of time building in the story the world of nineteen forty San Francisco, of showing us the community that Haskell and Emily live in of showing us their friends of leading us through the, the World's Fair on Treasure Island. How important was it to you to tell a story of community in the you know of, of a gay community in that sort of a time and context?
2: Well I think that the, the city itself is is the seventh character in this book it's it's setting but it's also character because, like I said, when I started out 40 years ago, what I wanted to write about was this city that I had fallen head over heels in love with. Originally, it was it, the, the World's Fair was what hooked me um, because it was this just fantastic. Thing. I mean, the island is still out there. You can drive to Treasure Island. There's nothing on it. It's a Navy base or was a Navy base. Now it's pretty much nothing. But, you know, you, you can go there, but there's nothing left of the fair, nothing at all. There's more left from the nineteen fifteen World's Fair than there is from the nineteen thirty nine World's Fair, I find ironic. Um so so I knew that I wanted to have then, and then when I started when I found out about the gay bars and the history of the gay bars, um at that point Mona's Mona's was it, and there's there's so little about about Mona's. There's like two pictures. I mean the the gay and lesbian archives have, have some. So I wanted I didn't want it to be tawdry, but I wanted tawdry to be around it, if that makes sense. I wanted the women's lives just to be—I wanted them to be ordinary and just be living their lives and not spend all of their time talking about being gay, because you really don't. Back Mm -hmm. then you wouldn't—now most of the people that I know are gay don't spend a whole lot of time talking about being gay. So I wanted them, I wanted you to see them in their ordinary lives, but I also wanted you to know that the society around them made made those lives difficult, which is why it's not Emily who gets arrested in, in that scene. It's big Jack, you know, you know, bad things will happen, but they're Mm -hmm. not happening
1: to, to her. I think one of the things that's fascinating about that, about the society around them is the, the tourism business, the what amounted to a 1940 version of sex tourism or for that matter of what they would have called, I guess, oriental tourism between Chinatown and between what amounted to. How would you describe it? Lesbian voyeurist tourism? Oh, yeah. Well, I, there
2: was also a, there's also a, a male uh, a, a drag bar that was about three doors up the street that existed until about uh, five or six years ago. Uh, called Pinocchio's. Pinocchio's um, mm-hmm. is is you know internationally known and lasted, well, some 60 years. Um, Mona's lasted in, through the end of the war, but not, not much beyond that. Forbidden City lasted until the 60s. In the 40s, there was also a, a a bar called Sinaloa where you could go see real Mexicans, and there was a there were a couple of, of bars where you could go see actual Negroes playing, mostly playing jazz in the film war. So there were Any ethnic group that you can think of that was just a little beyond the pale, there was probably a tourist bar. And they advertised these bars in the the playbills of the legitimate theater. So Hmm. if you went to see, if you were from out of town and you went to the theater, in the playbill, you would open it up and there would be a little ad on the the side um, and it said, Mona's, where girls will be boys. Um, and the address. So they were advertising these places in very legitimate, mainstream, completely secular, as it were, places. Um, but the, the bars themselves, and the bars themselves, I mean, especially Mona's, uh, not so much Forbidden City. Forbidden City really wasn't a hangout for any of the Chinese community. Um, I would it was it was pretty much all tourists, but Mona's was for for some of the women in in town like the only place that they could go and dress the way they wanted to. So Mona's served like a you know quadruple purpose, which was not as
1: true of Forbidden City. There's also a theme that I think comes across in that of uh, it comes across, and I don't know if this was deliberate or not that there. Everybody, all the main characters seem to have to split their lives between two contrasting cultures. For example, you've got, you know, basically a lawyer, an intelligent, uh, educated person who's partly making your living as a dancer. Um, you've got especially Loretta Haskell herself, who on the one hand is making her living basically painting pulp covers, but on the other hand is connected to the high art world of of Diego Rivera, who's a friend of hers, and, and, and Frida Kahlo, who I think remains off stage, but is implied as a friend of hers.
2: Well, she slept with Frida. Yeah. Oh, yes. So, okay. So, yeah. Uh, no, Frida, I actually, I was actually, even though it's a fantasy, um, I was not playing fast and loose with the history much. And Diego Rivera was at the fair on the dates I needed him to be. And Frida didn't come to San Francisco until September of 1940. Oh. by which point the fair was closed and I needed Haskell and Emily to be gone. So, mm. so yeah, Frida, Frida is there, but she's off stage. Um, yeah, Haskell's, Haskell's interesting. I, I got to the – once I figured out that she was an illustrator and I had found out and I looked at Brundage's covers um, and I got the pastels, and then I spent like a month learning about pastels and fixative and – Really, I spent days and days and days researching the chemistry of fixatives um, and have long, elaborate scenes that are way too much than more than uh-huh. anybody wants to know about fixatives. Um, but I was trying to figure out, it's like, okay, why is she painting what she's painting? Um, and so Haskell's backstory, I was trying to figure out, I mean, because you look at those and they're very purient. Erotic kind of disgusting in some cases covers um which is why there was a controversy about the fact that a, a you know they were horrible if a man was drawing them, they were yeah. worse if a woman was drawing them exactly. and so so I was trying to figure out it's like okay, so why is Haskell drawing for these why she's not drawing for the westerns or the or you know the romance pulps or any of the other or the even the detective pulps. Um, and that was when I came up with the backstory of her being abused, and and basically sort of doing self therapy with every painting to find a way to channel all of that. Um, and I, yeah. The other uh,
1: uh, j- just as a footnote to, to to geek out a little bit on on what little I know about pulp, Brenda's covers were they were they were prurient, but they were some of them were brilliantly designed. And and the structure of the paintings, and I think, by the way, some of this is reflected in the in the cover of Passing Strange. Also, there was a real kind of talent there that you by by and large didn't see on the covers of Spicy Detective or Ranch Romances and that sort of thing. Uh, so so the, the Brundage covers stand out among pulp collectors even today for that reason.
2: I think Haskell's better than Brundage. Um I mean, fortunately, you know, you don't get to see them side by side. There's, there's, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I don't. After after looking at, at lots and lots and lots of Brundage's women, I got kind of tired of of the way that she draw, drew some things. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what I was what I was fascinated by was was figuring out a way to make what Haskell did it, that she's not she's doing it for completely different reasons than the people who are buying them then. Would be buying them, or the people that are buying them now. Right. Um, you know, Haskell doesn't, as far as I know, know that she turned out to be highly collectible. Um, and that's the other thing about the frame story is that it sets you up for the post-pulp world. Right. Um, mm. And then, and sets you up for not only the cover, but but Haskell's paintings so that as you're as you're reading along, you're sort of going, oh. That's why that thing, um,
0: yeah,
2: and, and that that that
0: tickled me. How important are the elements of fantasy to you in the book? I mean, they integral um, integrally, integrally gives the story its its finale, if you like. But how important was it to not tell it as a straight mainstream historical, which you could have done?
2: Well, I didn't know that I could have done that cuz I was doing it for you and for tor.com and <laughs> tor.com publishes science sure. fiction and fantasy and and this has been this has been a theme in my career of I write mainstream stories that sometimes I go, "Oh, I should put some fantasy or something in there because of who I'm trying to sell it to." Um in this case, because i had written the the story called caligo lane um which is now uh, tor.com just reprinted it on their website and i think subterranean just put it out as as the you know from our archives um and caligo i mean one of the problems i have is i don't i want i like the idea of magic but i don't quite believe in it mm-hmm. Um, and every time I've tried to write something that's just straight fantasy, I feel like I'm writing a Mad Magazine parody. Um, and But I had written Caligo Lane. It took me two years to write a 3,000-word sh- short story because I did just a ridiculous amount of research in order to explain to myself, for lack of a better term, the physics of the magic that Franny does. Mm. And and worked out a very coherent explanation of why Franny's magic works. Um, Caligo Lane came out like three years ago this month, um, and so when I sat down to write this one, I already had Franny's magic, and I had already explained it to myself in sufficient terms that I was like, okay, so I'll, I can I can believe that Franny Franny is actually magic, um, and then. The magic at the end, but then I thought it would be a cheat to have Franny's magic save them because as somebody in my Clarion class once said, your protagonist is not really pro tagging. Mm. Um, and so I was then then I had to go back and go, okay, so how can Haskell can Haskell oh have any God. magic? And that was when I came up with the pendant which which gets referenced all through all through the book, but not you know, it's not like people are pointing at it going, look, it's magic.
1: Um, well, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the only early example of magic we get is, is is Franny. And it's for people who haven't read the story or haven't read Kelly Lane, It's kind of a neat conceit that there's a kind of origami involving maps that actually folds the geography you're in, uh, which every, everybody who's been trying to walk through a foreign city using a map, has probably wanted to have that exact thing. If I pull this over here, I'll be there. Um, and
2: it only works in San Francisco because of the fog.
1: Ah, that's right. I forgot about it that. It might so, work
2: in might work in London. I mean, it will work pro- probably in any foggy place. But um, you know, the beginning of Lane, I think the first sentence, one of the first sentences, San Francisco is a city well suited to magic. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, Franny's magic. Franny's magic is the magic at the beginning. Um, and then they talk about magic and science and the differences and everything at the dinner party. Um, and then, yes, it's absolutely completely mainstream historical film noirish pulp, whatever you want to call it all the way through to the end. Um, and the, and one person complained that, you know, there isn't magic all the way through. And I, my response to that, I mean, I, I kind of went, well, no, and then I thought, well, why, why would you – no, magic isn't like cleanser. You don't use it every day. Magic is like the, the good dishes that you only get out on Thanksgiving. Uh-huh.
1: Um,
2: I mean, except maybe in Bewitched where, where you know, it was a half-hour sitcom, and so she had to use magic a couple of times in, you know, 22 minutes. But I thought, no, if you really had magic, you wouldn't use it all the time. You would, it would not be an everyday thing. It would be a very special thing. Um, And so most of your life, you're living as if you don't have magic, um, and you use it when you need it.
1: Well, there's also the business which I liked about uh, the different kinds of magic, including one kind of non-magic. The daughter of an illusionist of a magician is involved in this, too. So all these parts of magic that are sort of implied throughout the story don't really solve anything individually. But when they come together at the end of the story... That makes the magic, the various magics, dependent on each other, uh, which I thought and was that, very, very clever. That
2: that gets that gets back to community. I mean, there is there is a hint. Um, Franny Franny and Polly are related very distantly, and there's a point where, where Polly's going, you're pulling my leg. You're, you're this. There's no real magic, and mm-hmm. and Franny says. There is a power that runs in our family. It's, oh, not now. This is a conversation we have to have later. So yeah. at some point, Polly may turn out to not just be a scientist. I'm not sure about that. Um, well, that's, but, that's yeah, a- I, I wanted at the end, it has to rely on physics and chemistry and magic and and community and everybody else doing their part and and making a pact for 75 years that they will keep an eye on this thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I love the idea that that, you know, I mean, Haskell and and, and Emily, by the end of the book. Have been together for, I don't know, like two and a half weeks. Yeah. Um, And the idea that they get. Seventy five years together. Now, we don't know if those are, you know, we don't know what happens. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, I I, I like the idea that, that everybody else is watching out for the painting and that Helen at 100 is the last woman standing and, and has to make sure that it's taken
1: care of. Which is a great so, opening. Yeah. yeah, but that also reminds me, again, uh, I, I kept coming back to, the time gypsy which also involves a document hidden away for decades which when revealed will will basically end the story.
2: Yeah, and time gypsy it never actually gets revealed.
1: No, but well we we know it's going to be.
2: Yes, and and when time gypsy is a lot shorter. But yeah, I mean but, I think well I've always I've always loved that idea I and mean, and this is part of doing this is part of just being uh, a closet historian is, is I love the past.
0: know, mm-hmm. I,
2: have, I have very little interest in the future because it hasn't happened yet. But the past is sort of infinitely fascinating to me because there are all of these nooks and crannies and metaphorical cupboards and drawers that nobody's looked in in 60 years. And you never know what you're going to find. Um, so yeah, there's, there's an element of, of, of treasure hunter, um, that is, I think probably my brand of magic that if, you know, if you look hard enough, you're going to find the, the special thing.
1: Yeah. It seems to me even in your mainstream historical novels for young adults, uh, there's, there's a kind of sense of magic in them. They're, they're, They're partly because maybe at that point, uh, The the nuclear energy seemed like magic, and what the parents were dealing with seemed sort of cryptic and and indescribable to the kids, uh, and that goes right through the uh, the V2 rocket. And yet all this is sort of uh, resurrecting a sense of magic that people must have had about these things at that time.
2: Well, and and people as, in the franny, as Franny, franny said, I some, I, ap, apples, uh, as Franny says, apples sometimes turn out to be oranges. Yeah. Things that that were considered magic at one point are now codified, and things things that that you know, the, and there are still things that you know we don't know how they work.
0: Do you think it took? <laughs> sorry, continue. Yeah, that was, I was just kind of. it. I was going to say, yeah. do do you think that it took an element of fantasy to find a happy ending for the characters you had in the time they were living in?
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, if the way that the way that the the all of the the plot twists and turns that I gave them, yes. Um, but I gave them those plot twists and turns so that really there was no real world good ending. Um, there was no there was no non magical ending. If I hadn't given them, and I'm, I'm I'm being cryptic because I don't want to give anything away for the people who haven't read the book. But if I had not given them the plot obstacles that I threw at them, yeah, I think so. I mean, there were there were certainly women. Women who lived together, you know, for 50, 60 years and, and nobody, you know, nobody bothered them. They were very private. Um, you know, when when gay marriage first started um, being legalized, the first people that were lining up were couples who had been together for, for decades. Right. Yeah. Um, the first the first two women in San Francisco were um, Del Martin and Phil Lyon. Um, who were doing very public um, lesbian work in the 50s I think and they were they were in there they've been together for I think sixty some years they were in both in their 80s um, and and they were the first the first two women that the mayor married so so yeah I mean you you don't get in 1940 actually any time bef- before you know the last couple of years you don't get the social um i was going to say social security but that's not what i want to say you don't you don't get you you do not get the the blessing of society but that doesn't mean that you can't you know live your lovely ordinary lives together um so yeah there there can be happy endings in the 40s um in this case in order for there to be an actual plot um their their happy ending it relies on on both both having really good friends and a little bit of magic.
0: The publication of Passing Strange at the end of the month marks, I guess, in a way, the end of a 40-year journey with this particular story, given that you started it in 1977. Um, Looking at it now, holding a copy in your hand as a reader encounters it, what are you most concerned they might misunderstand about it before they read it or as they read it?
2: I'm not quite sure what you mean. Um, I, I, when 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 I first saw the cover, uh, the cover art, mm. um, which is by Greg Manches and is I think selling more copies of the book than the description of the contents on the back, mm-hmm. um, I was afraid everybody was going to think it was much too much of a romance. Um, and now, now I'm not. I don't think. If, if you look at the cover and then you read the back, um, it's either going to be your kind of book or it's not. Um, and the cover, you know, I, the, I think the Liz Bork um, review, um, I can't remember. I read, read something where somebody said that they didn't think they looked at the cover and didn't think it'd be their kind of book. And then they, they, they read the description on the back and thought maybe it would, but they didn't think it, the cover fit. Um, and I think once you're done with the book, you realize that the cover does fit perfectly. I mean, it's, it's, it is the best cover I may ever be given in my life. Um, and it is absolutely stunningly perfect for the book. Um, but I, you know, I can imagine it also doesn't look like a science fiction cover. Um, which means that in an array of other science fiction books that are coming out, it, it stands out, you know, for good or bad. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think if, like,
1: if you're. If, if, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say a, another way of asking that question is after um, you've had an interesting career. <laughs> I mean, you started out with a Nebula Award winning short story, uh, went, went on with, uh, with with two young adult novels, which have been very well received. The third one, I guess that's not really young adult anymore by the time we get to the third one. And, oh yeah, uh, the
2: third one's the third one's actually probably middle grade because the kid's ten.
1: Oh, that's right. It's a it's a child of the people in the first one, right?
2: No, it's it's there's it it's it, it's complicated. Okay. But anyway, yes.
1: My qu- my question was going to be though: you have a World Fantasy Award for the novella you did with Andy Duncan, *A Spring*. You have *Passing Strange* getting terrific reviews. You have the young adult books, and you have a history of um. Stories which, as you well know, I've taught some of in my college classes that range from just heartbreaking mainstream stories like Guy's Day Out uh, to, well, to Time Gypsy. What do you think Ellen Klage's readers expect of you? Who is
2: the Ellen Klage's reader? Something different every time. The first science fiction writer that I met was Pat Murphy. And this is... I think Pat and I have known each other about 25 years now, but but she said, and 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 Pat, like me, writes whatever interests her, and mm-hmm. she said that somebody came up to her and said, "This isn't a Pat Murphy book," and she said, "Yes, it is because I wrote it," <laughs> um, and and I am not obviously going to be the kind I'm, I'm not, you know, Robert Jordan. Um, I am not the kind of probably will never be the kind of author whose name is bigger on the cover than the title um i'm not going to write i don't write a series um i don't write the same thing twice um so some of my you know the readers the readers who like the way i write will probably i hope pick up whatever i write because they think i write interesting things mm-hmm. and if they are disappointed because it's not exactly like the thing that came before, then, oh, well, if I can, you know, I can promise them that whatever I do, it's going to be, it's going to be a good story. I don't want to write the same thing over and over. If, if, if you, I'm, I'm hoping that you see the name Ellen Clasius and you think eclectic and interesting and well-written.
1: The well-written certainly the eclectic. Okay, I'll buy that. Uh, okay, here's another <laughs> question related to that. Um, you have you have a cadre, I suspect growing every year, of, of, of young adult readers, of people in the, let's say, 10 to 15, or maybe even younger than that age range, who may have read uh, White Sands, Red Menace, or The Green Glass Sea. Um, and now you've got a collection of adult short stories coming out uh, this year, I gather. Do you see that any of your young adult readers follow you into your adult fiction
2: i don't know because the when Green Glass Sea has been out ten years now, and so yep. the first fourth fifth sixth graders that read it are now in college, so maybe they haven't mm-hmm. written to me and said now I'm a grown up and i have I have gone and sought out your short fiction um, <laughs> but I do know that there are a lot of Middle school, I don't think elementary school libraries, but there are a lot of middle school libraries that have my portable childhoods, my first short story collection in them. Mm -hmm. And when I find it, I go and have a little chat with the librarian and explain that they are not, these are not stories for children. And she goes, but aren't you the, and it's like, yes, I am, I am the author of that, but these are not stories for children. Um, They are stories with children in them, a lot (laughs) of them. Um, And then I warn them about, Two stories in portable childhoods: Triangle and Guys Day Out. Um, right. And say if if you're if you know your your kids and they are reading way above grade level and they are emotionally mature, you know there's nothing there's nothing in these stories that they that they can't read, but they pack an emotional wallop that that a lot of twelve year olds aren't ready for. Right. So I don't know. I don't know if the people who read me when they were children are now going to read me as an adult as possible.
1: Do you find it the reverse? Do you find your adult readers picking up Green Glass Sea and uh, White Sand Red Menace?
2: Green Glass Sea is, I mean, I didn't write Green Glass Sea to be a children's book. It's really worked out well for me. I just wrote it to be a book. You know, on the inside of the, of the cover, it says nine and up. Up that I know of is 97. So I th- think Green Glass Sea probably has a large number of adult readers anyway. And I, and I suspect that anybody who read I mean, it, with the exception of Green Glass Sea and White Sands, Red Menace, everything else has been a short story and... And so you either have to hunt them down in wherever they appeared individually or find the collection. Yeah. Passing Strange is the first, is the first thing in, I guess, nine years now that is an object that you can hold that isn't part of something bigger. I mean, a 3000 word short story, it doesn't come out as. Well, actually, Time, Tachyon did a, a, a chapbook of Time Gypsy yeah. about. 10, 12 years ago. And here's an interesting trivia fact. Do you know who the illustrator on the cover of that edition of Time Gypsy is?
1: No. No?
2: Emily Netterfield.
1: <laughs> it's you. Really? Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did I did. the cover, and I and I signed it Emily Netterfield. So it, it, except for the last, like, month, if you Googled Emily Netterfield, she would have come up as the illustrator of one of my books.
0: <laughs> I mean,
1: what I was going to mention, in terms of those crossover readerships, as you're well aware, the short story of Green Glass Sea was anthologized by Peter Straub, if I'm not mistaken, in Poe's Children, yeah. pretty much as a modern horror story for adults.
2: Yeah, it has been it has been anthologized as science fiction, mainstream horror, and children's.
1: Wow, okay, yeah. <laughs> you're talking so, you know I, yeah. I
2: i i do not fit genre labels really well um and even when i'm trying i mean i think passing strange i is is definitely genre although it is many genres mm-hmm. um, yeah. it's fantasy there's a little science there's a little science fiction there's some pulp um it is in my head it is film noir with starring Katherine Hepburn and Lauren Bacall as the two leads mm. um, and has been for 40 years. I've always wanted to see that movie. Um, and so, I mean, I watched, I watched five or six movies with each of those actresses in it in order to get the cadence of those two characters' dialogues down.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, so it's, Um, and it's also historical. Um, and the first part is, you know, a little mainstream and and not historical. And I don't know if I've missed one. Oh, screwball comedy. There's, there's, (laughs) there's not a lot of screwball comedy, but there's, there's a couple of my, one of my favorite lines is, is, um, is a screwball comedy line. So, so yeah, it, it is, it is genre blending, genre bending, Mm.
0: Um, Stuff. I
2: I tend to be a square peg in in round holes a lot. Um,
1: but there, are, you know, the, 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 there's a whole category of writers, and you're part of them. And I, and it, it's it's a it's a category, it's a group, it's not a category of people who are clearly informed by genre, clearly read, let's say, a lot of science fiction or a lot of fantasy, um, and yet don't necessarily write in that tradition. This is a a, a group of people that would include, it would include writers like I don't know Juno Diaz or, or, or Karen Ross. You can tell they've read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. They're just not writing it uh, right now in the fiction, and, and, and I think that Michael happens. Chabon. Michael Chabon, yeah. I mean, for example, you look at the chapter title. Was it the chapter titles in um, White Sands, Red Menace that are all 50s short stories from science fiction magazines?
2: Yeah, they're all from Amazing and Astounding.
1: Yeah. But only science fiction geeks would even notice that.
2: So it's like you're Charles, giving a little
1: handouts.
2: Charles Brown did. Um, yeah, of But then I got all the titles from books that he lent me, so...
1: <laughs> so he would. So
2: I, I like... I mean, I don't want to be constrained by genre. I want to be able to, you know, walk onto the genre playground and be able to mess around and, 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 you know, morph the boundaries a little bit and and just, you know, take a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. Yeah. Um, because I think that, for me, that makes it more interesting. What, um, I, yeah.
0: what I will say about Passing Strange, though, I and mean, Gary said a little while ago about how somebody may or may not make a journey from Green Glass Sea through White Sea's Red Menace to reading Portable Childhoods and beyond I do see that the reverse path works. Passing Strange is actually a wonderful doorway into Portable Childhoods, into the stories in the new collection that's coming out, and then that leads on to, I think, a very satisfying interest in reading the the two novels. It seems to me to be one of the most emblematic works of your fiction I've read.
2: Thank you. Um it also of the of the six main characters, three of them appear elsewhere in my oeuvre, um and three of them are, are new to this story mm-hmm. um, uh Babs appears in one sentence in white sands um and then Suze actually shows up at the World's Fair with her mother very briefly um in passing strange and Franny comes from Collego Lane and Polly yeah. comes from a story called Hey Presto. Um and it it tickled me when I realized that because a lot of my work is set in the past, that they actually could all be in the same place at the same time and there was no reason they shouldn't know each other. Mm. Um and and that amused me. No end and I hope it also amuses other people that I'm 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 sure you know, Hey Presto, probably not a lot of people have read. It came out in a lovely anthology called Fearsome's, Fearsome Magics. Um uh-huh. But the next time, you know, it's anybody that, that has read Passing Strange, you know, a year from now, if they pick up Fearsome Magics and they get to that story, there's going to be one of those, wait a minute, oh, I know her
0: <laughs>
2: kind of moments. And... And I I I'm I'm hoping that I can then create create more of those. But I that was one of the delights for me in this, especially when it was in its embryonic stage, and I was trying to figure out who these people were and how they could know each other. Was going, oh well, wait, she could be there, mm-hmm. and then go back and 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 look look at the already existing story, which was in print and therefore like the rest of history. Um, un unchangeable. Um, and see, it's like okay, well, that could still work. I have to do that, and so that was just me having author fun.
1: Yeah, well, that's like fun, and, and and you could have you could have overdone the uh, what I think of as celebrity walk-ons. I mean, we've got Diego Rivera, who, as you said earlier, you made sure he was there at that World's Fair at that time, so these characters could meet them. But isn't that part of the fun of doing historical research? I used to know a mystery writer named Stuart Kaminsky who wrote Hollywood Mysteries, frequently set in the 40s. And he would do, he started out as a film historian, and he'd do exactly the kind of research you're doing to find out, well, is it possible that Paul Robeson could have met Albert Einstein at this anti-war rally? And is it possible that uh, Ian Fleming might have bailed out the Marx Brothers from from Capone's gang? And, And and part of most of what he was fascinated by was simply seeing if he could put these people together in the same place at the same time with some historical credibility.
2: Yeah. And that's, and it, it, it is fun. I mean I had, I had a bunch of other celebrity walk-ons that, that are on the cutting room floor um, <laughs> because at, you know, at one point, at one point, I mean, it's a very streamlined novella Ooh. and part of that was to keep it, under 40,000 words. And part of it was because I just wrote it. I mean, the world's fair scene, I think was twice as long at at one point. It was like 9,000 words. uh, And it's now like 5,000. And I just kept trimming and trimming and then thinking, well, you, you really don't know that that need to know that that person was in San Francisco. And, um, but the idea that the characters could know each other. Yeah. Um, I thought was fun, and I also it, it, at some point was thinking, "Oh, grad students twenty years from now will have have fun with this." <laughs>
0: <laughs> we have, but yeah.
2: I think I think
0: yeah. I, great.
2: I'm hoping that that passing strange is. Um, I mean, I, I I I thought at one point I, I loved the title um, because every single woman of of the six of them is passing as something, except for Franny is uh-huh. actually just being Franny. Um, but as I was developing the characters, I was trying to figure out ways in which they were passing and ways in which they were, you know, camouflaging um, in order to, to fit in and, and, and stay out of trouble. Um, but at one point I thought, you know, I could call this book Bechdel test because mm-hmm. it's pretty much nothing but dialogue between women with a few exceptions and with a very, very few exceptions, they're not talking about man at all. Mm. Um,
1: and the one guy they end up talking about is, well, we won't get into the actual no. crisis, but... Yeah. He, he's uh, an interesting character by himself, though. Uh, a failed poet who might have been part of the San Francisco Renaissance in the 30s. There's an implication of even an earlier era in San Francisco history that that is just hinted at. Um,
2: there... And 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 there was there was a lovely paragraph that I that I cut about all of the I mean, Bret Hart the the building that Haskell lives in the Monkey Block. Uh, mm-hmm. Bret Hart lived there, and a, a whole bunch of uh, Mark Twain didn't live there, but somebody I, Ambrose Bierce I think lived there, and mm-hmm. Jack London was there for a while, and there I mean there's just this whole list of artists and writers and poets who lived in the Monkey Block between 1856 ish when it was built and 1959 or so when it was torn down um and and there were i had a lovely paragraph about all of the writers and artists that had lived there and then i thought nobody
1: needs nobody cares you know maybe another novel.
2: it's it's well it, it it was interesting when i found it out and then Became less interesting as as the novel sort of started to take form. Um, hmm. The one the one piece that I did really meticulous research on was Helen, um, because she was she was the one character that I I, I wanted to make sure that as a a, a white woman um, I was not writing her as a Chinese stereotype. Um, yeah. And so I I did really probably a solid month of research about Chinatown and the Chinese in San Francisco and the Chinese nightclubs. And she's based on a woman named Dorothy Toy, um, who danced at Forbidden City, um, and was also, uh, of Japanese origin, um, and passing as Chinese, um, which is what gave me the idea, um, but I did did lots and lots and lots of research because um, I wanted to present the the racism of the 40s as well as the homophobia and the sexism. Um,
0: Oh, yeah.
2: But I wanted to make sure that I did it so that it wasn't going to upset anybody.
0: Um, Yeah. When we talked about Passing Strange, we originally hoped that it will be published in 2016, and it's turned out it's coming out in January of 2017. And I have to say, from my own perspective, as someone who was fortunate enough to help work on it, I couldn't imagine it coming out at a better time. Uh, and the reason is pretty obvious, I think. It is this tale of community. Mm. It is this tale of support. It is this tale of love, and particularly love between a minority, in this case, two gay women. How do you feel about it coming out a week and a half, two weeks after the uh, inauguration of Donald Trump? Because it seems to me it's exactly what we need in this world at this time.
2: I feel like it's exactly what we need in this world. It's actually comes out four days days after the inauguration, assuming that nobody can stop it between now and then. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm still holding out a tiny ray of hope, but Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Um, yeah, it is, it is about, um, underrepresented cultures across the world. I mean, just women to start out with. Um, and, and then, and then, and gay women and, and, you know, foreigners and exploitation and, and all these things. And it's, at the time that I was writing it, um, it was it was history. And I think Caitlin Kiernan in her blurb says um, it's a marvelously gritty tale of the bad old days, um, and I'm not as terrified as some people I know that the bad old days are coming back. But it it um, I hope that this is this is a reminder of you know that even when things are bad, you know, there's, there's hope. Um, I certainly take it that way. It's, it's, 2017 is, is, is going to be an interesting year to have, to have, have anything come out. But um, this month particularly, and this book particularly, Mm -hmm. um, I, although I don't think, okay, Donald Trump doesn't read.
0: um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and would be unlikely to read this. In fairness, I think
2: I, I, I suspect that 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 Trump supporters are not going to be my audience for this book.
0: Possibly not.
2: I'm, I'm I'll go, just go out on a limb and say.
0: That. No. <laughs> I guess I should say as well, this book is coming out as you say in the next week or two um, in a beautiful print edition with a gorgeous cover by Gregory Manchester that I have come to love and admire more and more as time has gone on. Um, but it's not the only book you have coming out this year, is it? You've got another one coming out in another, what, three or four months.
2: I've got a I May 17th, I believe, is is the date that I've seen. It's a, a, new, a second short story collection called Wicked Wonders, uh, coming out from Tachyon Publications. And it has all of the short fiction that I've written in the last decade or so with the exception of Wakulla
0: Springs, and of course, my favorite um, unpublished story of yours, I think.
2: Oh, and and yes, and one one unpublished story called called Wood Smoke that, until I wrote Passing Strange, was was my favorite thing that I'd written. Um, I mean, I think you get a story done, and and for a while, it's the favorite thing that you've written, um, and then you write something else that becomes your new favorite. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm 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 very, very pleased with Woodsmoke. And Karen Fowler is Karen Joy Fowler is doing the introduction for the collection, which is a an incredible honor for me. Um, and she said in her introduction that she didn't like to pick favorites, but that she thought Woodsmoke was the best <laughs> thing that I so we you will have to wait until May for that. But yeah, uh we we'll- Wonder- coming out in May and then assuming that I get the novel that I'm working on done by the end of this month, uh, there'll be a new children's book coming out in April of 2018 called Out of Left Field that is about girls and baseball and Mm -hmm. is set in 1957.
0: Wonderful. Well, we shall look forward to Out of Left Field and we shall um, definitely name check the collection that's coming out. Uh, Passing Strange will be out in all good online venues and bookstores near you sometime soon. But for the moment, Ellen Clay, just thank you so much for making the time to talk to us about the uh, about Passing Strange, and thank you so much for letting me be a part of bringing it into the world. Uh, thank you so much for
2: asking me to do
0: it. But until then, thank you again, and Gary, I'll talk to you next week. Until then, this has been the Pod the Pod Street Co- Cast. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> I should just Take whatever. Two. <laughs> I think I'm going to find a new co-host. I mean, come on, can't even say Good Street. Pod yeah, I'm going to have. <laughs> <laughs> hey.